the advent of industrial capitalism using fossil fuels really creates the illusion that the economic system is not tied to its earthly foundations, that this system of profit can go on ad infinitum. Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a lecturer, a climate corruption reporter, and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists, and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, and political crises that we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is Lisi Kroll. Lisi is a professor of economics at the State University of New York, Cortland, where she researches political economy, human ecology, and the evolution of economic systems. She's also the author of Bitter Harvest, an inquiry into the war between economy and earth. Lisi joined me today to talk about all of the topics in, that she covers in Bitter Harvest, essentially this tension between our economic system and our earth system, what she calls the more than human world and the human world. She explains how our economic system, capitalism, is so much more than culture. It is actually the result of 10,000 years of a system that was predicated upon the agricultural revolution, where human beings began to collect surplus, and that surplus allowed them to develop hierarchy. And it completely changed their relationship with the world, whereby they weren't necessarily interacting with the earth as the earth is and its biophysical reality, but were adapting that biophysical reality to suit their own needs. Lisi says that our fossil-fueled capitalism is an interpretation of that very same system, one that has embedded a duality between human and earth, and that navigating through the climate crisis towards a sustainable future will demand not just the cultural changes that people talk about, but undoing this economic system, this economic superorganism that we must come to understand if we are going to change. This is an absolutely fascinating episode. I hope you all enjoy it. If you do, please share it far and wide. If you're loving the show, support the project with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. By signing up, you'll also get access to the weekly article I write inspired by each interview. Thank you to everyone who has signed up and is supporting the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who keep the project going every week. Lisi, thank you very much for joining me on Planet Critical. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Rachel. It's really nice to be here. So you are a professor in economics and you've been researching the economic superorganism and its relationship to agriculture. The economic, the economic superorganism is a term that's come up on this podcast before, but for anyone listening uh, who might not have come across it before, could you explain um, these terms before we delve into your, your research and your recent book? Um, well, by the economic superorganism, I'm, I mean something... Uh, very specific. So I'm not sure okay. if people who use that term use it in exactly the same way. But for me, um, it signifies a profound change in economic organization uh, of human beings uh, that began with the cultivation of annual grains. 
where humans became configured in an economic system that essentially created a duality between them and the more than human world. And I think that may not be intuitive to a lot of your uh, listeners uh, because people view agriculture as being something close to the earth. But the system mm-hmm. that was engaged with agriculture was a very specific system of a highly elaborate division of labor around the focal point of cultivation and tremendous interdependency and feedback loops that were expansionary. So feedback loops between population and cultivation and division of labor play together to create a different kind of system. And that system stands um, unto itself in a way. The complex relationship humans had had with the earth before becomes reduced to the annual cycles of grain production. And so uh, that's what I mean by the economic superorganism. But I also um, acknowledge that humans were not the only uh, species to engage agriculture. Agriculture was also engaged by numerous species of ants and termites. And the interesting thing about that comparison is that the structure and dynamic of their economic life is very similar to that of humans when humans began the cultivation of annual grains. Ants and termites cultivate fungi. So it's a different coevolutionary uh, relationship. But the structure and dynamic of their life, their economic life, uh, and their collective organization uh, becomes very similar, is very similar to that of humans, or I should say, Humans have a very similar uh, organization mm-hmm. to ants and termites because they did it before us. So that's okay. so. So agriculture is a universal system, and the agricultural system is what I refer to as the economic superorganism. Okay, so let's break this down a little bit. Um, so, from what I understand. You're talking about 10,000 years ago, the agricultural uh, revolution, as it's referred to, when human beings went from being differently organized all around the world to producing a food surplus. And in the production of that food surplus, the capacity for that food surplus, that was when humans became, we became configured by our own system. So rather than being configured by the earth system and that relationship, it flipped and we started being configured by a system of our own creation. Is that correct? Um, partially correct, except for the following. Mm-hmm. I would make the following. Uh, 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 I don't know if it's correction or uh, elaboration. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that. I think ag- the creation of agriculture is part of uh, an evolutionary dynamic and a process of system creation that is mm-hmm. universal. Okay. So it's often thought that humans 
create agriculture through their ingenuity, et cetera, et cetera. And that's not my story. My story is that a, it's a, agriculture is a particular play on human sociality. Um, mm-hmm. And su- humans evolve a capacity to be social. And that sociality is, comes to be uh, configured in a certain way with the cultivation and coevolution with annual grains to form a system uh, that puts humans in a different position vis-a-vis each other and vis-a-vis the earth, the rest of the earth. So I don't know if that uh, further elaborates. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we're talking then about how hierarchy came into being. Well, hierarchy comes out of that because grain agriculture is, for many reasons, a surplus system. Um, and there's an elaborate explanation of that, but it becomes a surplus system. Grains can be stored. Annual grains, annual grains push production. Uh, uh, in a simplistic sense, and sort of one way to think about it is you simply don't know what your offtake is going to be from one year to the next. And so it always behooves you to produce as much as you can in any one year. It's also a terrible option for soil and soil erosion. And so to counteract that, there's constant pushing of the envelope of agriculture. And annual grains can be stored. And so um, it becomes a surplus system. And out of that surplus system, you get hierarchies developing. And of course, hierarchies feed back on the system. Could you speak more to that? Well, for example, if you have uh, a a group of people who uh, are involved in, you know, who are priests, who are uh, kings, uh, queens, uh, armies, they require the surplus production of agriculture to sustain them. They're not producing. Mm -hmm agricultural output other people are but they have their roles developing as a result of that surplus and so they develop kings and queens for example pre the incentive to uh, make sure that the surplus is forthcoming and that, that they have their take on it or their take off of it if that right. makes sense. Okay. So, so it's a oh, natural, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, a yeah. very natural corollary to surplus in human beings. I think that there's a brilliant line in the paper that you sent me. Um, hierarchy feeds back on the agricultural system, pushing it to further expand because elites depend on the expansion of surplus for their survival as elites. Yes. Yes. That yes. is absolutely fascinating. Um, yes. And it is so prescient in today's moment uh, when we see vastly growing inequalities and the need to limit our consumption and start to pair back um, our economy and the 
sincere unwillingness from whether it be business leaders or politicians and perhaps not from a lack of imagination of how um, a better world could be formed, but also an awareness of what impact that would have on their position. Because I imagine when you degrow an economy, you're then reducing those hierarchies as well. You are, you may or may not be, but uh, um, how do I want to put this? Um, it's not just the elite that mm -hmm. are challenged by degrowth. And I think that's something that that I want to emphasize because there's so much emphasis on the greed of corporations and all of all of that that feeds into this uh, desire that to want to keep expanding. But I think I view it in a somewhat different way because I view capitalism as a for example, the global economic system that is with us now, as a very specific interpretation of the economic superorganism, where the mm. um, the type of surplus has changed. So you have surplus in the form of agricultural output, grain output, for a long period of time. Under capitalism, it, there, there's an institutional interpretation of surplus that takes place. And that institutional interpretation of surplus is essentially surplus value and its translation into profit. Okay. But everybody's involved in that system. The workers, mm -hmm. the capitalists, all of us are involved very interdependent uh, around that kind of surplus. And surplus is not, in the form of profit, it's not simply greed, though there's plenty of that. And I'm not suggesting the system doesn't engender greed. I'm just saying that there is a dynamic to the system that goes beyond greed and becomes imperative. The imperative to stay mm. in the game means you take your profits and you invest them and you're constantly trying to find avenues of uh, profitability. And so uh, I don't know if that explains things, that explains things a little bit more from my perspective. Um, but um, I just want to emphasize that this is not just a matter, our challenge is not just a matter of getting a handle on greedy corporations. It's much more complicated than that mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. it's such a highly interdependent system that when we start, start pulling, unraveling the threads of that complex tapestry, uh, it is hard to say what's going to happen. Let's talk about some of these dynamics um, because I agree. I think a lot of the rhetoric gets stuck on greed as the sin that is driving the world and sort of fails to understand or, or communicate the fact that while well, systems are sort of self-propagating and self-reproducing um, forces, say, in the world. Um, so can, can you speak to that? How is it that our economy almost has this life of its own that drives us uh, to engage with it in this sort of growth-obsessed way and makes it very difficult to, to get off that train? 
Do you want the long, long explanation? <laughs> well, We've got me... hours, so yeah. Okay. <laughs> so out of the surplus of agriculture, and I'll get to the answer to your question, out of the surplus of agriculture, mm -hmm. um, you develop institutional arrangements because humans do have the capacity for culture. For example, markets. Markets are a way to exchange surplus. Markets ultimately have a life of their own. So they, if you think about them going from a place to exchange surplus, uh, to, uh, uh, kind of, uh, an institution where buying cheap and uh, buying cheap and selling deer is part of the process. Try to get goods for less and sell them for more. Okay. To a market system where that act of buying cheap and selling gear actually folds back on production. So now you not only want to buy cheap and sell gear, you don't want to be dependent on little petty commodity product producers to get your stuff. You want to make sure you have supply. So it's logical that that evolution of markets would feed back on relations of production and develop particular relations of production. And that's exactly what happens in the course of human history. Okay. You get the development of markets from kind of this ancillary part of an agricultural system to the development of markets as a place to buy cheap and sell deer and then development of markets uh, in a sense that it feeds back on the very process of production. Okay. Um, um, can we pause there for yeah. a second? Um, yeah. Can, can you just clarify what exactly you mean by that, that, that feeding back? Do you mean by wanting to exploit for, you know, if you go down on the supply chain, is that where exploitation comes out? Wanting to get your goods and your labor and your relationships for as cheap as possible and therefore kind of breaking any sort of social contract of trust that might have previously been a part yes. of the marketplace. Yes, it demands that those previous kinds of social contracts are 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 eliminated and that a new kind of social contract uh uh of uh, you know it, it initially in some places slavery but also wage labor. Mm replaces all previous social contracts. And mm -hmm. the whole purpose is to get workers to produce for you in a way that allows you to sell for more than you have to pay them. And that's where you get profit. Or if you're able to offtake um uh you know the 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 things that the earth provides um, and sell it for more than it takes to uh, harvest it or mine mm. it. Okay, so um, yeah. the, that's that's the basic kind of uh, uh, system of profit that takes place. But what people don't understand is that that evolution of markets had occurred before the industrial revolution, and you can 
you can understand it if you look at the textile industry. Uh, Andreas Malm has written, I forget the name of the book, but an excellent book which talks about textile production and um, uh, what happened there. So textile production is initially done with falling water in uh, rural areas, but there wasn't enough labor. So the use of industrial production using fossil fuels allows you to uh, 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 position your production, not having to position it next to falling water, but anywhere you want. So you can position it in a coastal city where you have coal, access to coal. So the Industrial Revolution, this is tapping into this largesse of energy, of highly dense carbon, really sets this profit system in hyper-dries, okay? Because now you have essentially eliminated the more modest kind of energy restrictions that being close to falling water would be or depending on just human labor or animal labor. Agriculture would give you, now you have access to fossil fuels. So in my mind, that, and it changes the nature of production. So you start to get mass production technologies developing out of this that can produce lots of material at a very, very low cost. And then the imperative for expanding markets becomes even more important because you have to have markets to sell your stuff for one thing because mm-hmm. you're producing a lot. So there's always this over problem of overproduction when you get this kind of mass uh, production, industrial production. But energy, in my mind, fossil fuel energy, it, it basically really severs the system from its biophysical foundations. And that, again, mm-hmm. is counterintuitive. Because we know the economic system is a material system. But, and so you have this tremendous expansion that begins to take place, uh, beginning in the early 19th century and continuing. So let me just go back a minute and say agriculture severs the ties of humans to the more than human world. We're no longer embedded in the same way in the rhythm and dynamic of the more than human world with agriculture. It develops in its own kind of insular way. But the development of capitalism is a particular institutional and then energetic kind of interpretation of what began with agriculture. So you get this expansive, dynamic, interdependent system, growth system that functions unto itself as if it isn't connected to its biophysical roots. And I can't remember what your initial question was, but... (laughs) 
that's what I that that's what I that's what I see happening here. So there is this profound duality that develops between the economic system and the earth. What I characterize as the thing that we need to pay attention to is that profound duality that has developed. Right now, we're intent, or many economists, sort of progressive, earthly economists, are trying to reconnect the economy to earth and talk about all the ways the economy is connected to the earth. And they are right. The economy is a material system. It pays to pay attention to the ways in which it's connected to the earth. Energy is just one aspect of that. And climate change are one aspect of that. But at the same time, I think there's a necessity and there's insight that can be garnered from understanding how that profound duality between the economic system and the earth emerged and its significance. The duality being 10,000 years ago when we began to produce annual grains. Right, and that we really do have a system. We really do have the evolution of a system that functions mm-hmm. in some ways as if it's disconnected from the earth. Mm-hmm. So you get agricultural mm-hmm. systems that expand, of course, until the mm-hmm. ecological limits set by the particular place they're in, and I'm talking about grain agriculture, lead to collapse. If somebody were listening to this and said, well, hang on, I, do, I don't understand how a system can become disconnected and how a system can self-propagate, how a system can be mimetic in a sense. Um, is it not just that we all share uh, a belief set or a value set and behave in a certain way that is the uh, constant reproduction of that system? And therefore, if we were not to like educate ourselves differently, um, we could change the system by changing our behavior. Could you, could you speak to that? Could you speak to the complexities of that? Uh, well, I think that's actually a really important question that you asked. Mm. Um, and I don't know that I can answer it satisfactorily. Um, but what I've tried to do in my work is to give people a sense for the power of the system we're involved in. It's evolutionary roots, that it's a particular uh, problematic play on our sociality. Um, I've tried to give people a sense for that. And what I have also tried to get people a sense for is the fact that we put a lot of stock in the fact that we are cultural and Mm -hmm. we are intelligent and we are cooperative and we can, through re-education, rethinking, we can uh, conceive of a different kind of system. Okay? But history tells us that in the past 10,000 years, our intelligence, our cooperative nature, our cultural 
manifestation and institutions have not run counter to this system mm-hmm. that got going. They have enabled it to move forward, to become elaborated. And so I think you have to be really careful about the hubris in believing that we can re-educate people and we're going to have the power to change course. I hope that's true, but it isn't simply a matter of re-education. It's a matter of system change. And that's a much more complicated matter. And I think that it takes actually reaching into uh, a more um, in-depth understanding of our evolutionary history and particularly the evolution of sociality and the way in which sociality becomes configured in this kind of system with agriculture that then takes on a life of its own and ultimately lands us here. So um, I, I, I don't know what capacities we have to change the system, mm. okay? But I do believe that it's naive to think that just because we're culture, cultural and just because we're intelligent and just because we're cooperative, that we have the potential to right this powerful shift that seems to be moving in a very problematic direction. Well, this might this might be completely taking us off on the wrong track, but you mentioned that ants and termites um, also use agriculture. Um, and I interviewed John Gowdy about his work on uh, ants and termites and this idea of complex societies needing simple individuals and all this kind of thing. Uh, It's fascinating. Is there anything that we can learn from the way that ants and termites are organized um, that we could apply to our uh, dual relationship with the earth? Because seemingly ants and termites have a more sustainable relationship with their environments than the human population. I don't know how to answer that question. Um, It was probably a better question for John, but John and I were uh, together yeah. on foundational research on ultrasociality. Um, and mm. so my work comes directly out of that and crosses over mm. with that uh, uh, many, many times. I think the thing we learn from ants and termites is that system development, even in humans, is not simply a cultural matter. It is uh, a matter, a complex matter of Coevolution, in the case of humans with uh, uh, annual grains and human sociality, in the case of insects with fungi that they cultivate, it is a matter of feedback loops, system dynamics. Um, it's a matter of energy and whether you use surplus energy. And what you do with that, I mean, ants and termites, for example, don't develop hierarchy. I mean, one could say, well, there's queens and there's workers. That is a genetic 
uh, uh, kind of evolution of their, their evolution into this uh, economic super organism was done through mutation and selection in a way that it wasn't done through mutation and selection in humans. Okay, so it was a very mm -hmm. long process for ants and termites. Um, they're massive, extensive colonies of cultivation. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how you assess what, you know, the ecology of all of that is. Uh, I mm -hmm. don't know that they move toward collapse. They also have the capacity, because they're so small, to move colonies from one place to another. Mm. in ways that are not so easy for humans to do. Um, so humans have all kinds of elaborations that insects don't have. So what I would say is that it, it's prudent for humans to pay attention to culture, institutions, all those, the, the inventiveness and intelligence, uh, you know, that comes to be embodied in different technologies. Um, and the way that those play in the human system in ways that aren't at play in ant and termite colonies. This is particularly fascinating what you're saying, because I think very often we see this being presented as a question of culture. So uh, typically global north culture and the culture of extractivism and colonialism, which has become extractivism and neocolonialism, right. um, exploitation. Right that this is the culture upon which we have based our systems and therefore to change the systems we need to go through a cultural sift and we need to uh, define our culture by a different set of values. But what I'm hearing and what you're saying is, is the complexity actually of the problem in front of us. That if it comes from a 10,000 year history that is so much more than culture, um, as you see there's, there's so many different sort of nodes plugged in to create the system and yet and yet, something that comes to me when you're talking is that sort of the irony, in a sense, is that the global culture that we have today is not particularly complex. It is in its structure, but not in its actual culture. I mean, if you think about the fact that we are 8 billion people on this planet and the vast, 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 vast majority are all plugged into the global financial system and all sharing this same value of profit maximization um, and, uh, and working within the same market and being acted upon by market forces, there's a simplicity almost there that makes the whole thing seem to me quite fragile almost. Mm -hmm. And perhaps that's why it's going to collapse. And I know I'm sort of tangenting here, but you know, when you think about an ecosystem, you think about its diversity and it's within its diversity that there is a resilience. And yet global capitalism, this manifestation of all of these forces that you've just described, it's kind of reached this apogee, this, this climax where it is only one thing and it can only go in one direction. And perhaps that is why we are, we are crumbling because, well, we've run out of runway, it seems, on a finite planet. Right. Right. I mean, that's a, that's a, a, a nice comment and an astute comment. If you think about it, I mean, the, the question of culture, I don't even like the word culture, but the question of culture is really mm -hmm. um, interesting because what you see happening with globalization is the elimination of cultural diversity. Mm, yeah. 
you know, and you can see it in the, you know, extermination of languages, for example. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, the move toward having English be the dominant language uh, uh, globally and the extermination of language and the extermination of culture. So on the one hand, you're absolutely right. It's this sort of pulling everything now into this kind of uniform uh, kind of economic structure and system to the elimination of everything else. Now, you do get diversity in terms of the interpretation of uh, the system by local communities, but there is this underlying mm -hmm. tendency to pull everything into um, uh, the same the same kind of thing. The other thing is this, that culture in, in evolutionary history um, is thought of as an adaptive evolutionary trait because humans were evolving into their being chiseled into their final form during the Pleistocene that 1.5 million years that precedes the Holocene warming. And there were dramatic climate change going on during that time. And so culture is seen as something that gave humans an adaptive advantage. Okay? Mm. You can learn, you can pass that knowledge on, you can develop different techniques for managing different environments and that's culture in a sense so it was adaptive but now we're being drawn into this one sort of global capitalist culture and it's also the case that though culture may have been adaptive during our Pleistocene evolution, when you think about the challenge of climate change, culture yeah. may be a drag mm. on quick adaptation because we have all of these institutions and we have this way of existing and we have all these relations that we've worked out around this highly dense carbon in this system. And it may not be, we don't have, culture doesn't, culture is a lag. No. It holds us back rather than providing a quick mechanism of adaptation. It could be the case. I mean, I think localized resistance movements are incredibly important. Uh, to pay mm -hmm. attention to. Now, I'm not suggesting that they will move the system, okay? But I do think mm -hmm. that they are uh, a form of resistance and we should pay attention to forms of resistance that are taking place. You know, the Green New Deal or making the transition to renewable energy this is not a form of resistance. Mm -hmm. This is a form of, in its present form, 
is a form of accommodation, not resistance. Let's talk about that uh, in more detail, how the sort of status quo is masquerading as solutions. Well, if you think about the transition to renewable energy, it is based on a uh, long-standing ideology. And the long-standing ideology is that human ingenuity can solve our problems. Mm-hmm. Technological change in human ingenuity, the entrepreneurial spirit, as it's captured in capitalism, can solve our problems. It reacts. Why? Because there's profit to be made in doing that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a certain truth to it. Okay. But if you view our problem as a problem of duality between humans and the more than human world, and what we really need to do is to embed ourselves, conceive of economic institutions that re embed humans in the more than human world. If you think of it that way, there's nothing about the expansion of renewable energy that's going to do that. And the expansion of renewable energy is built on all kinds of myths. One that I just talked about, that human ingenuity is going to solve our problem. Okay? Nobody seems to be, or not nobody, but there are few that seem to be aware of simple things like the energy return on energy invested. You know, Hmm. Charlie Hall's kind of uh, notion um, that net energy is important and that renewable energy is going to have less net energy than highly dense carbon, conventional highly dense carbon. That means there's less surplus energy for us. People don't seem to understand that. Um, They don't seem to understand the uh, limitations, for example, of (laughs) consolidating all of this dispersed energy, which is what renewable energy is, into a system that provides people with energy in the way that we've had it in the past. Um, you know, the mm-hmm. intermittency in renewable energy mm-hmm. is a problem. They don't seem to be aware of the problems with storage and batteries. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not suggesting there can't be technological changes in batteries that'll be better than our lithium alternative, Okay. But if there aren't, we're in trouble because battery storage becomes crucially important for the implementation of uh, renewable energy. We don't even have, you know, the further you get away from the primary kind of burning of carbon, the harder it is to follow it. So I don't think anybody Mm -hmm. can tell me whether a Tesla is actually more carbon neutral than a car that uses gasoline and is um, very small and fuel efficient. It's not clear to me, especially when we don't know where the carbon's coming from or where the power's coming from. 
to recharge the Tesla. Yeah. 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 I mean, the whole concept of carbon neutral even is applying sort of human words, human understanding to the more than human world, to use your terms. Mm -hmm. It's using accounting tricks when discussing biophysical reality. It right. drives me mad when people talk about net emissions, as if that means if you get to zero, if, as if that means that nothing was emitted. Right. It's absolute nonsense. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt right. you, but it's, it's, it really a, it, going. It, it's a challenge. And, and the whole point is that the point of renewable energy, as, as it's talked about in the sort of mass discourse, um, is not to lower our energy demands and help mm -hmm. us to realize the need for limits. Instead, it's intended to allow this expansionary system to go on ad infinitum. And it does not mm -hmm. recognize the profound challenge that we have. That is that we are confronting limits and need to confront limits if there's any chance of re-embedding the human economy with the more than human world, we have to confront the, the unequivocal challenge of limits. We have to do that. And a lot of our discourse around renewable energy doesn't do that at all. Well, I mean, around everything. Uh, mm -hmm. There was a piece of legislation that was in uh, in New York State, the New York Fashion Act, for example, um, last year. And it was, it's all about sort of mandating sustainable fashion. And the very, very, very many pages of this bill, there was not one comment on reduction, on yeah, reducing no. the amount of fashion that is produced or bought. It's to even talk about consumption uh, is sort of antithetical, it seems, outside of these circles of, of people studying it and people attempting to resist because it is a direct attack on the system. And it's funny, isn't it? Because that is a term that is sort of thrown about the internet so much or, you know, in people's garages as they're sitting having, I don't know, I was going to say having coffee, but I mean smoking a joint and talking about the world. Mm -hmm. You know, they talk about the system, the system's out to get you. But there is, there is a system, there is a system and there's people that are that are very bought into the system and cannot change or there's people that um, are unwilling to because also they are aware of the complexities of it if you pull one thread what happens to everybody else i mean and what you're saying about limits to 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 our materials access and all these things and the fallacies of renewables i think somebody who is a renewable proponent would say well hey but we've got eight billion people on this planet and we need to pull them still out of poverty that's going to demand a redistribution of resources, sure, but it's also still going to demand the energy. We need to provide electricity if we're going to have schools, if we're going to educate kids, if we're going to tackle poverty, if we're going to give people food and housing and all of these things. So what do we do? What do we do when we've kind of, the system has reached this climax where there's this many people to take care of who are not being taken care of by the current system, but nonetheless, and we want to create a more sustainable world. How do we do that with our energy? How do we cap, how do we cap what we have and attempt to change the system whilst also trying to give more to the people that already exist in the world. I imagine that would be sort of the, the counter, not argument, but question. Well, it is. It, 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 it's, a, it's a central question. And the answer to that question is that if you want to limit energy use, 
and you want to offer enough energy for the impoverished masses, both words operative, impoverished masses, mm-hmm. to escape their impoverishment. There's only one way that can happen. And that is that the top energy consumers have mm-hmm. to consume a heck of a lot less energy in order to enable. So that is, in a sense, a distribution problem. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's a distribution problem. And, um, of the, of, 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 of the highest order. You know, and so that's exactly what uh, needs to take place. And incidentally, all of the studies that indicate, you know, we can get to 100% renewable by 2050, et cetera, et cetera, none of them take into account the uh, horrible distribution of energy that takes, that mm. exists right now. They're not yeah. making their projections with that in mind. And, um, but the reality is there's no way to allow more energy for the impoverished masses without the top, at least the top third giving up something. No way. Yeah. Stan Cox, a friend of mine, has written a really good book about that. We can talk about that later. It's called The Green New Deal and Beyond, which talks about that. Before that, I think it's worth noting um, in what in what you were just saying that one of the reasons that we also cannot provide energy to the impoverished masses, as you're saying, is that to lift the impoverished masses out of poverty would be to give them a fairer access to the world market. It would be to stop forcing them to engage in sort of dangerous uh, labor activities or low value added manufacturing. Um and the West is very, very unlikely to do that because for now we are extremely dependent on their resources to build our renewable economies. So I imagine right. any logic would be, well, we'll get our renewable economy sorted out first because if we start to alleviate inequality in the world, then that's going to directly impact our capacity to fuel ourselves in the future and beyond. Um so I imagine that's another way, again, of this system sort of, of uh, self-propagating. Right. And we're asking the wrong question or we're ha- we have the wrong goal in mind in all of that. You know, mm-hmm. the goal of human decision making in 2023 ought to be rapprochement with the more than human work. And we should have that as the central focus of our attention in all of its complexity and manifestation. And that's going to take us into profound economic discussions. It's going to take us into profound existential discussions, profound Mm -hmm. spiritual discussions. You know, we need a whole movement that has that focus, this problematic duality that we have on our hands and, uh, and an inability 
to come to terms with that duality in this system that embodies in its apogee the duality that's been created between humans and earth over the last 10,000 years. Mm-hmm. You know, we, I mean, you know, in simple economic terms, you think, well, you know, really, I mean, there are ways to get around this to be sure, but we are asking to degrow for purposes of ecological uh, soundness at the same time we're trying to solve problems of inequality. And inequality has historically always been solved. <laughs> Maybe I should restate that. Inequality has never been solved by growth. Okay. But it's always the promise. If you can't grow, what chance do you have? I think there are all kinds of people that are exploring the, you know, the boundaries of that. But inequality always now has to be discussed, can never be discussed, should never be discussed without simultaneously couching it in the context of limits. And I assume then inequality is solved by redistribution. It is solved by redistribution, but it also has to be solved by changing the underlying relations that exist in the economic system and the economic system itself. Not just redistribution. Because mm. redistribution is putting a Band-Aid, but not solving the underlying problem that is the system that is generating inequality. Mm. The system is mm. generating inequality. Yes, we can redistribute income, and we should. I'm not advocating mm. that should not happen. It should happen in, 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 in many ways. You know, universal child care, all kinds of ways you have to redistribute income. So it ha- should happen there. But it is also the case if you have this underlying dynamic of wage labor and profit, you have to ask whether or not that dynamic has to somehow be altered. Well, yeah, absolutely. So then if we have to alter the dynamics of our system, let's talk about this duality with economy and earth. How can, and I don't say, I don't mean how can we in like a feasible manner, but let's talk about a vision for what the relationship between human economy and earth system could look like. What kinds of changes do do we need to, to make there? Well, you can't have a system that's growing and has Mm. an imperative of growth. Okay? Okay. That's the big one. You know, and you have to solve the problem of growth in a more foundational way than simply capping resource use. Because if you don't change anything else, that's going to create tremendous upheaval in your system as it presently exists. Okay. Okay. So you have to solve, you have to get under this problem of, of growth. That, that is one thing that, that, that has to take place. Transitions that are major 
in the system need to be managed transitions, not because anybody has a affinity for socialism, but because I don't know how you take transitions into the realm of executing them without growth unless it's some kind of managed transition. I don't know how because you otherwise do. it would be a collapse. Yeah, otherwise uh, you wouldn't get you wouldn't get what you want. You want to mm-hmm. manage a transition, but you also need to manage not to grow. So, for example, the transition to renewable energy, right? I, energy just needs to be taken out of the dynamic of expansion, the production of energy. It needs to be taken out of the system. It should. What, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? I mean, we should have uh, uh, collective ownership and management right. of the energy aspect of our economy. It should not be okay. a private enterprise proposition. Okay. Either in its production yeah. or the management of this transition. And I think that we need to start to think about aspects of our economic system that actually just shouldn't be part of this particular type of economic system. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be one way to go about it. We could talk about healthcare being another way. Okay. Mm-hmm. That it should be taken out of that private enterprise expansionary kind of economic dynamic mm-hmm. and do what it's supposed to do, which is to provide people health care, uh, access to health care. Yeah. So I think yeah. there are some ways in which the economic system can you you can try to move it away from being connected to this underlying dynamic that will surely help in the proposition of trying to contain and limit that particular aspect of the material part of our economy, you know, which is what we need to do. The expansion of conservation is absolutely crucial for any transition. And that Mm -hmm. is something more than simply creating more sustainable relationships between people and the earth. Sustainable is too vague a word um, and too vague a concept. What we need is conservation of the wild impulse of the planet, pure and simple, another form of limits. Mm. You know, I mean, I like Mm. conservation in that sense, even though it's gotten a bad rap lately. But I like conservation of the wild. What does that mean, conservation of the wild impulse of the planet? I mean that you put the conservation of, uh, you know, 
migratory paths of animals, uh, the area that they need to be able to carry on their lives as the species they are, uh, that you need to limit the encroachment of human enterprise on all kinds of areas of the earth. That doesn't mean that you can't reach kind of more sustainable relationships between the natural environment and the human economy in other areas. But some areas just need to be taken out of the mix. Mm. And there aren't that many left, to be honest Mm. with you, because we're confronting the sixth mass extinction. I don't see how you get around. I don't see how you get around that without massive conservation of of many areas of the planet that are left to conserve. That's a limit. To expand upon what you were talking about earlier about market forces and just to illustrate how wicked a com- uh, wickedly complex a problem this is. Um, so there is a campaign at the moment, 30 by 30. So to conserve 30% of uh, the planet's mass, land mass, ocean mass uh, by 2030. However, there are a lot of indigenous groups and NGOs who have come out against this for multiple reasons. Number one, why only 30% uh, is sort of the first question for many people. seems like quite an arbitrary number. Uh, but second of all, there's a fear that this is another land grab. So to, in order to get 30%, that means taking lands away from indigenous peoples again. It means uh, taking lands away that have already sort of been culturally agreed upon. It means um, uh, possibly, you know, displacing people again um and it means handing land over to the state in a very particular way and undermining its wilderness therefore its wildness um and so a lot of people have come out and said this isn't the answer this is just another way that the economy is trying to sort of uh divide and conquer the problem by segregating atomizing every single part of it into a different piece um, so that we can say, well, we've got 30% of this land protected and we've concretely defined what that protection means rather than thinking, well, how do we create a better relationship with 100% of the planet? Because by definition, conserving 30% suggests that the other 70% can continue to be exploited. So even the conservation debate at the moment is very complicated. It's very complicated, and uh, this is the way that I would respond to that. Mm. I would say that the conser- the conservationists, for, for, first of all, I would say those are not a, mutually exclusive. Okay? You can try to create more sustainable relationships between a sort of semi-wild area and people that live in those areas. Okay? Mm -hmm. And you can create a more sustainable relationship 
between society as a whole and the earth. Try to do that. Hmm. But that's not recognizing something that's occurred historically. Okay. There's an argument coming out of the conservation movement that setting aside wilderness areas plays into a duality that we should be fighting against. Mm -hmm. In other words, what we want is a world where people live sustainably with the earth. Yeah. We do want that. We do want that. Yeah. Okay. And that duality, you know, creating this duality, wilderness or people, wilderness or people is problematic. And I would respond to that by saying that those who take that approach actually are not altogether in touch with the reality of our historical moment. Because the reality mm -hmm. of our historical moment is that there is, in fact, a profound duality that exists between human beings and the earth. And that profound duality is eliminating the wild impulse of the planet, okay? So the mm -hmm. argument of the conservationists is that we're just recreating duality. My argument is the duality is real. There is a duality. There is a profound duality that has taken hold. Mm -hmm. And one of the best ways to set limits and recognize that duality is to prioritize the rights of the more than human world and to conserve mm -hmm. them, to conserve places. So I think there's a, there's, there's kind of a false, a false argument going on. There is no duality. Humans have to live in, in uh, harmony with the earth. Absolutely. But there is an absolute real duality that exists. We have an economic system that functions as if it is disengaged from the earth. And at this time in history, and for the last several hundred years, trying to set aside places that would be removed from that impact has been a really good strategy for conserving uh, uh, what I call the wild impulse of the planet. It's not been adequate, but it's not been nothing. And to say we don't want duality doesn't mean that duality doesn't exist now. And reckoning with that duality, I think conserving what we can conserve is a very good strategy in 2023 um, to acknowledge the rights of the more than human world and to draw a line in the sand in terms of limits. I don't know if that All makes right. sense to you. Yeah. But yeah, um, yeah it does. 
I think, I mean, I think if we had, if we had more time, I mean, we could do another hour on like, well, what is duality and what was our relationship, you know, prior to the agricultural revolution? And uh, will we ever manage to return to a more equal, I suppose, relationship whereby it's not just human beings impacting the planet, but we live in more of a dynamic relationship with the planet. I think it's the climate crisis is quite interesting in a sense, because it's like we are feeling the impact of the planetary system for the first time in a very, very, very long time. We're being sort of shaken about by it, certainly mm-hmm. on the front lines already, and mm-hmm. it is coming for the rest of us. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would assume then that there is a duality now. Um, there is a human world and a more than human world. I always think of it in terms of uh, earth systems and human systems. And the steps that we need to take now concerning our economy and concerning those relationships need to acknowledge that duality and work with what we have, the systems that are available to protect it. And then as we continue further along, this what is no doubt going to be a painful systems change hopefully one day that duality will start to reduce or, or blur. I, I mean, I think that that's I, I, ideally what, I mean, this question of re-embedding mm. in the rhythm and dynamic of the more than human world, which is, I think, what you're questioning is is yeah. getting under, I think is actually kind of an, it, it, it's an expansive question. And, it, and, it's mm. a, and it's a really important question. We do, in some sense, want to carve a workable relationship with the more than human world. We want some kind of a balance. Okay. But we can't, we can't, at the same time, we can't ignore the historical moment. And the historical moment puts us at the cusp of the the sixth mass extinction and a lot of the con- conversations about the uh you know creating a more workable conservation relationship with the uh, more than human world don't reflect back on the underlying system at work Mm. so how is it going to go down if we're trying to create more workable sustainable relationships with the more than human world if we're not at the same time questioning the structure and dynamic and duality created by the economic system Mm. i think that's something to think about because the people who are advocating that sort of thing are not, by and large, questioning, or many of them, not all of them, but many of them are not questioning the underlying economic system. It's like the idea that this economic system can be managed to be more sustainable. It can be more sustainable or less sustainable, but that doesn't mean we're going to end up with a world where the rights, wild impulse of the more than human world is given priority, is given it's just. That doesn't mean that's what we're going to end up with at the end of the day, and chances are we won't end up with that. I think 
creating workable conservation is with indigenous communities and local communities is important. I don't think that should be instead of conservation of areas that are just seen as hard and fast limits to the system. Mm. Mm. Yeah, reimagining conservation as limitation. That is excellent. Yes. Uh, Lisi, I think that is a really powerful note to end on. Okay. Thank you so much for your time today. My final question for you is, who would you like to platform? Well, I mentioned before Stan Cox. Um, Stan Cox is a plant geneticist who uh, worked uh, for the Land Institute, a progressive organization, a really interesting organization in the United States developing perennial grains. Um, wow. Wes Jackson was the the uh, uh, sort of initial genius behind the uh, formation of the Land Institute. But Stan Cox has been one of the uh, plant geneticists that has worked there. Stan also has a really good grasp on economic matters. And he wrote a couple books, The Green New Deal and Beyond and The Path mm. to a Livable Future. And uh, I think he'd be an excellent person to have on your program. Um, another, another person, Bob Jensen, uh, who wrote with Wes Jackson, An Inconvenient Apocalypse, uh, Environmental Collapse, Climate Crisis, and the Fate of Humanity. He, he, he would be excellent. Um, and then a philosopher at Middlebury College by the name of Bill Vitek, uh, who started a, a pro, a program uh, called New Perennials, um, would also be uh, uh, someone who would be uh, worthwhile. Wonderful. Okay, and I have Wonderful. to just, I have to just before we depart, put in a plug for my book, because I wrote Please. this book, <laughs> uh, Bitter Harvest, an Inquiry into the War Between Economy and Earth, that talks about a lot of the stuff that I talked about today. So and you can get it relatively cheap. It's now out in paperback. So if you're interested in the ideas we talked about, that might be something your audience might want to look at. Definitely. And I will put links to your book in all of the show notes. Lisi, okay. thank you so much for your time. This okay. was absolutely fascinating. Rachel, I appreciate it very much. It's been nice to be with you. I've put links where you can buy Lisi's book, Bitter Harvest, over on planetcritical.com, where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly essays inspired by each interview. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, support the project with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. As always, thank you to the Planet Critical community who support the show and make all of this work possible. Thank you all for listening. See you next week. 